All right. I was thinking this week we would watch The Last Airbender. Oh, wait. You mean the one with the blue people that fuck through their hair? No, no, no. The M. Night Shyamalan movie. The one with Bruce Willis where he was a ghost all along? No, Bruce Willis isn't in this movie. Okay, now I'm really confused. Hello, gentle satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my elemental co-host. It's Chelsea here, uh, bender out of space and time. Ooh, sounds like a nice Lovecraftian twist. Yeah, exactly. They're spirits too, okay? That's fair. <laughs> Well, this week, we regret to inform you that Jack was unable to join us, but we will be hearing from him a little bit later on. He's even going to ghostly introduce himself. And I'm Jack Olander, someone who has never seen a bender, and now that I have, am questioning my reality and will never sleep well again. Oh, that's that's really scary. Is that tied to the whole Lovecraftian horror of this episode? That's for you to find out. <laughs> All right, well, this week we watched The Last Airbender, the 2010 film directed by M. Night Shyamalan and starring Noah Ringer, Dev Patel, Nicola Peltz, Asif Mambi, and Jackson Rathbone. We have a lot to talk about with this film, but before we get too far into what we want to say about the movie itself, Chelsea has a summary ready to go. Yep. It's totally prepared, written ahead of time, so... Like every week. I'm ready. Here is your summary for The Last Airbender. So in this movie, there are four nations that are all centered around the elements. The earth, air, fire, and water nations. And the fire nation has been ravaging the land, using aggressive force and violence towards the peaceful air, water, and earth nations. So is there no, like, hydrogen nation or oxygen nation or ranch dressing nation? <laughs> yeah, not even an iron nation. Ah, well, I mean, wouldn't they be, like, part of the earth nation? They're kind of an offshoot. Are they, are they like a subculture of the earthbenders? Yeah. The iron the iron folk? Yeah. They're called iron druids. <laughs> I've heard of those guys before. Yeah. Uh, so, as we enter this world, we find out there's a young boy who's known as the last airbender. Well, now, he... now, hold on. So, you're telling me that there's no other... <laughs> You're telling me that there's no other airbenders. That's right. So you're saying he's like the last one. There's just one of them. Okay. Okay. This is starting to make sense now. <laughs> uh, he's prophesied to be the one who can restore peace among all the nations. He is also known as the Avatar, the living embodiment of 
the spirit world. Now, you must be pulling from the TV show, because in the movie, they refer to him as the Avatar. <laughs> is that kind of like his name is Ang in the show and Ong in the movie? There's a show? <laughs> and the Avatar is known as someone who can master all four elements. Then why is he the last airbender? Because that's where he started. Oh, okay. So yeah. he started from the air, now he's all four elements? <laughs> <laughs> he actually started from the top, now he's here, because the um, air nomad temples are in the sky. Ooh, good point. <laughs> well said. Yeah. So he was trapped in an air bubble under the ice, and he is freed by brother and sister, slapstick, comic, uh, duo, Soka and Katara of the Water Tribes. And they kind of fill him in that he's been trapped in that air bubble for a hundred years, and he's still the same age that he was when he went in, I think about 12 years old. Roughly. Yeah. And through uh, Aang, called Ong in the movie, we... <laughs> That's going to get confusing. <laughs> well, I mean, the characters are completely different, so I guess it's not uh, surprising that they'd have different names. Okay, I'll go with Ong then. <laughs> so through Ong, we learn that we learn about the world and what's been happening since he was trapped under the ice. Oh, I know that Metallica song. <laughs> and we learn about the Fire Nation's colonizing influence and how they've been conquering all of the other tribes and subjugating them. Is this class struggle I hear? That's basically all this movie is. Okay, I like it already. <laughs> uh, and we also learn that the Avatar is reincarnated uh, every lifetime. I guess nobody else gets to reincarnate. Kind of a bum deal. Bum trade. That sucks. But, um... They reincarnate into a different nation each time they come back through a particular cycle. And so in this cycle, he was born to the air tribes, or what are they called? The nomads, the air nomads. And the Fire Nation wasn't having that. He he was their uh, avatar in the last part of the cycle, and they just weren't ready to let it go. And so they just decided to kill everybody else so that they would be the most powerful. The Fire Nation is the ultimate clingy ex. <laughs> yeah. They just, you know, they'll never let you go. They keep reminding you of how good things were in the past. They kill everyone who... Uh, <laughs> they kill everyone who resists their imperial rule. I've had some bad relationships in the past. <laughs> so... We follow Ong with his friends Soka and Katara on their quest to thwart the efforts of the Fire Nation to subjugate the other peoples of the world, as well as Ong's quest to truly embody the Avatar and master all four elements in what is called bending, the ability to magically use the element uh, any given element. Seems powerful. Yeah. And it's it's all somatic components. It's called upon through different um, bodily movements, a la Kung Fu and Qigong. 
Tai Chi and yeah. Um, Jack was telling us while we were watching the movie that the styles of martial arts are based on real world martial art styles. So the movements are based on real life fighting and martial arts techniques. So with help from the spirit world and his new friends, Ong is able to master the forces of water and shows the Fire Nation the true power of water, scaring the bejesus out of them and making them flee and not really creating a real peace, but just a kind of a stalemate through fear of mutual destruction. Listen, if there's one thing I know, it's that water puts out fire. <laughs> then again, from playing Divinity Original Sin, I also know that water and fire create steam. Where are the steam benders? They might be the most powerful benders of them all. Maybe that's what they hoped to bring forward in the sequel. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, that sequel that's coming 10 years later. So that's basically it. Everybody acknowledges that Ong is the Avatar after that point, And he kind of grudgingly accepts it. And we get a little scene where the leader of the Fire Nation says that he's going to basically murder Ong. Mm -hmm. and try to take over the world in their attempt to set up a sequel that never happened. The end. I'm assuming that, like, fans of the show who saw this movie and who were not horribly disappointed were probably losing their minds at this end credits, like, lead-in, assuming that it has anything to do with the show. I, I can't actually verify that because I've only watched the barest number of episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender. Yep. But I'm assuming since everything else seemed to kind of parallel parts of the show that this was some kind of setup for something that fans would have been goo-goo-gaga over. <laughs> well, thanks for that great summary. I guess now we should head into The Delve. This is The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Last Airbender. Don't you dare call it Avatar, or we will get sued. <laughs> so I think the very first thing, the most important topic we have to cover here, is the fact that if Ong was around in, like, the early 2000s, he would have been ready to be the frontman of the sickest new metal band with those tattoos, right? Oh, yeah, and the uh, shaved head. Yeah, well, that too, yeah. <laughs> I mean, plus, like, he actually knew a martial arts, so that would have probably given him some, like, cred with the fans. Yeah. But, yeah, those tribal tattoos, those are, those are wicked. I think that's one of the, the parts, like, from the show to movie translation that kind of worked pretty well, uh, that sweet ink. <laughs> yeah. In the show, it's kind of... Um... Just a simple arrow going across his head. Yeah, I don't know if that would have looked more ridiculous or less ridiculous I than what they went with. I actually liked the arrow that was like made out of tribal filigree in the movie. That that was visually interesting. Yeah, that was kind of neat. Yeah. Okay, well that's it for the delve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, Jack sent us a little bit of audio uh, with his thoughts on the movie as somebody who's much more familiar with Avatar The Last Airbender than we are. So why don't we cut to him? So, as you know, this movie's got a pretty bad reputation. 
This is not unexpected when it is compared to the show it is based off of Avatar The Last Airbender, which is, in a lot of people's opinion, a modern-day marvel of media. And I myself hold a similar opinion. I think it was a fantastic piece of media. The show was written in a very smart way where it was mature for a young audience. And as the audience grew in the real world, so did the characters in the show. And they really used that to develop how mature the show was and to make it palatable for a larger audience over a larger period of time. The advantage of the show, and one of the reasons people liked it so much, including myself, was that it really played up to the emotions of the people watching it. A lot of the situations you were put in, you cared about because there were a lot of charming characters that you wanted to see thrive and be successful. And there are a lot of close calls when peril arrives in the different villages and cities in Avatar The Last Airbender. It doesn't always end perfectly. Cities are burned down, people are killed, bad things happen, and the heroes don't perfectly save the day every time. This is one of the areas that I think the movie was a little too ambitious on. The movie is trying to fit an entire season of a TV show into an hour and a half, I believe, potentially two hours. But the disadvantage of that is a lot of what gripped people about the show did not translate to the film. So many of those characters that people loved and wanted to see did not have time to develop, and the movie did attempt to pull some strings in order to get you attached and understanding in a similar way. For example, Uncle Iroh talking to Prince Zuko about, you know, pretty girls and telling him maybe he should just settle down and, like, enjoy his life rather than go on this crusade to hunt the Avatar. But in the show... That sort of conversation isn't really explored until I believe the later stages of season two, where Zuko is kind of at a crossroads in his life and has to start rethinking the way he's living it. In addition, in the show, it's not so heavily pushed on that Avatar Aang is this defender of the world because he is the embodiment of the spirit world and that he is the only real connection to it that is in a living person. In the movie, they actually do an interesting job of this, where he is constantly meeting up with this dragon spirit, which appears to be like his, you know, spirit guide. That is not something that is explored very much in the show, though Aang does meet spirits on occasion. Having this direct spirit guide character was actually pretty interesting. And... In the movie, one of the other main differences to Ang, Ang, not Ong, the way they pronounce it in the movie, but uh, one of the other main differences they make with that is in the movie, Ang is not this fun-loving, goofy kid. In fact, he seems like a disturbed child who does not understand what's going on in his life, and he doesn't know what it means to be the Avatar. In fact, he seems more like a tool for the spirits. When I say this, I mean, because they took away that fun-loving, goofy aspect of a kid that he had in the TV show, it seemed like he was less of a person and more of a utility 
like a tool for the spirit world to interact with the material world. This was interesting and not unlike some depictions of Enkidu from the Epic of Gilgamesh, but it really detracted from the main character's relatability. Another strong aspect of the TV show was you got a glimpse of so many villages and so many cities. Like I mentioned before when I was talking about how you meet people everywhere you go along the way on this journey with the main characters. The only issue is you also lose a major part of the world. And what I mean by this is the Fire Nation is an imperial power loosely based on imperial China. And they have a systematic oppression on a lot of small cities, small towns. They restrict bending. They take benders away from their families, put them in camps, put them in labor camps, I mean. And there's a constant threat that their village could be destroyed at any moment. They have to follow the rules, and it's not a forgiving system. In the film, you see a little bit of this... They take a few minutes in the movie to reference an episode where the cast visits an earthbending village where all the benders are put onto an iron ship where they are not able to bend. Although, they do not include that part in the movie. In the movie, the benders are just scared for their lives and that's why they're not fighting back even though they're standing on solid earth. It takes them seeing the Avatar to rebel. This showed the oppression of the Fire Nation, but it didn't really give time to display the gravity of what was going on there. Systematic oppression and domination from a higher power or a stronger military power isn't really something I think should be glossed over. They just kind of tell you in the movie, oh, the Fire Nation controls everything. And I mean, sure, it shows the camp, but That was really just an excuse to show a fight scene where Aang is fighting firebenders and an excuse for people to see that the Avatar has come back. But that could have been an excellent scene to show what some of the atrocities that the Fire Nation is committing really are and would have allowed the audience to connect a lot more strongly to what they're trying to fight for. In addition... I was not comfortable with the way they portrayed the Southern Water Tribe as, or maybe it was both Water Tribes actually, as Caucasian individuals. Seeing them race-swapped to being white people was a bit uncomfortable in my mind when they're inspired by Inuit culture and waterbending is inspired by Tai Chi. I was joking when we were watching the film with Chelsea and Jamie Hey, you know which of the four nations had the white people? None of them. So seeing them in the movie was a little uncomfortable. And if you're going to be making the argument that white people needed the uh, representation, which I don't know about that, I would have liked to see some more ethnic diversity as well if that was the case. But... Really, I think we could have showcased a more Asian cast. And speaking of this, the Fire Nation, they showed primarily as being of Indian heritage, which I thought was very cool. All in all, though, the movie was trying to do something really big in a small amount of time. And 
of course, as Chelsea and Jamie are probably going to mention if they haven't already, it was very rushed. They were trying to fit a lot of content in a very small amount of time. They tried to take some creative liberties and change the narrative a little bit so it translated to the movie screen a little better. But in the end, I think that changed the characters too much. It diluted the world a little too much for people to connect to it. And it made a lot of very exciting plots not make sense or kind of boring, easy to ignore. Wow, it's like he's right here in the room with us. Yeah. So Jack brought up a point that we kind of talked about throughout the watching of this movie, and it's that Ong compared to Ang from the show is just kind of devoid of any real personality or like driving interesting character qualities. I would have never known watching this movie that the show is kind of lighthearted and Ang is kind of this mischievous, silly, kind of irreverent. I mean, I'd call him a man child, but he's I mean, he's 112 years old, but really he's just 12 years old. So just a child who's kind of had like these journeys in wacky, wild adventures and in the movie, he's just kind of like, hi, I'm the Avatar. I'm very important. I, I'm a little bit sad that my people are all dead. Now that I know that, oh, well, I'm moving on now. Like, And I don't know if it's like the, the actor's fault necessarily. I mean, a, a good director can get a lot out of their actors. And I think that M. Night Shyamalan doesn't know how humans interact. <laughs> Why do you say that? Just he doesn't like have a way of like creating a narrative that is driven by characters. I mean, his narratives are often driven by. I mean, obviously, I'm far from the first person saying this, like a twist or like a setup or something. But I've only seen I I think I've seen one other Shyamalan movie, and it was the one with the trees trying to kill everybody. So I think what you're touching on is how he likes to focus on the narrative of the story and using all of the characters to get to certain narrative points and bring about certain plot twists. Yeah. Which makes the characters feel like they aren't real, like they couldn't be real people because they have no autonomy. Yeah, and that is another reason why it seemed really weird to me that this was the movie he made where there's no way to surprise anybody who's familiar with the source material, I'm assuming. Like, Jack seemed to imply that a lot of the plots and the story beats were lifted from the show, so where's the main driving part that would make anyone care about what's going on? I mean, the interesting part about his other movies are it's supposed to be that you don't know where things are going. But in this case, fans are going to already know where the plot's going. I know, this doesn't make any sense. If you are trying to... If your audience for a movie like this is the built-in fan base who liked the show, why would you just recreate the show? That doesn't make any sense to me. Because they've already seen that. Yeah, and I mean, I'll be honest, like, seen it better. Yeah. I mean, the shots, the movie looks fine. Actually, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on, but, like, it's competently filmed. I mean, changing from animation to live action is already a daring choice, I'll say. 
Like, yeah. then to try to expand on this beloved world, I think that, honestly, I really believe that the safer choice was to just copy-paste the animated story onto the live-action world. I'm like, sure it's a safer choice, it's just a very uninteresting one. Yeah, but I mean, Shyamalan didn't, like, create this world or anything. No. I mean, I don't know how much the original creators were involved in this, if at all. But, Probably not. So, like, it would be really going out on a limb to try to write new material for these beloved characters. I mean, I guess at that point you really would want to bring in some of the original creators to help advise. Or just not make a live-action remake of a beloved animated classic. Yeah. Cough, Disney, cough. <laughs> Wait, was this the first movie to start the live-action trend that Disney would pick up? A few years later, this was 2010. Maybe taking a Nickelodeon show and turning it into a live action, and then hmm, hmm. very suspicious. Yeah, I might have my dates wrong on that. I'm not sure, but well, it didn't work in 2010, and I'm pretty sure it still doesn't work today. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it done well. I mean, if if anybody else has a different opinion, please respond in the comments if uh, either on patreon or our social media oh i've got one lord of the rings that translated really well from the animated feature into the uh, live action movies it wasn't translated from the animation though <laughs> that was from the books there's a book <laughs> so something else that jack brought up that i thought was interesting was the inclusion of influence from the spirit world in the movie, I felt like it was actually kind of close to my own lived experience of having contact with the spirit world. So dragons come to you and tell you that you're the prophesied one? Like, <laughs> all the time? <laughs> I mean, not dragons and not prophecies, but you know. Oh, boring. No <laughs> dragons and no prophecies? I am out. <laughs> What is what is our podcast if not exclusively revolving around dragons and prophecies? <laughs> <laughs> dragons and the prophecies they bring. <laughs> but just the way in the movie that he meditates and then with the help of his imaginal tools can delve into the spirit world and he, he follows a path to a cave and then speaks with a spirit helper that's not always the way it's going to go but the elements all reminded me of actual shamanic journeys and i was wondering if they maybe had some consultants for the movie that told them what it's like to go on a shamanic journey because that's actually one of the parts of the movie that I felt like was kind of accurate. And so often with media, I feel like people get spirits and the spirit world completely wrong. Hmm. And this one actually felt pretty accurate. So I was kind of surprised by that. <laughs> I mean, a broken clock is uh, right twice a day, right? <laughs> I mean, not anymore now that all the clocks are digital. A broken clock is just a blank screen. But. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I thought that was kind of neat. Should we update the saying? Is it like a clock on a frozen phone is right twice a day? <laughs> That's cool. I'm glad that this movie, I mean, it maybe it was a complete accident, but either way, it's cool that it 
like evoked that feeling from you that you were able to kind of get this familiarity and this sense that like oh i have a lived experience this movie is reminding me of something i've been through yeah because i mean i think really like i'm not, i don't want to get all sappy whatever but like that's kind of what film is right i mean it's such a subjective experience like every film will have its audience who adores it yeah like i'm sure this movie has tons of people who are like ready to go to bat for this movie that means something in it resonated with them and for you it was this spiritual experience that you felt that you connected and and felt like they had done some research on it yeah and i've had similar experiences with like when i've seen paganism portrayed in like dungeons and dragons or like earth-based spirituality and and um revivalist religions in like Dungeons and Dragons fourth edition. Like I felt like they were probably consulting some books on neo-paganism and stuff like that. And it resonated with me in a kind of a similar way, I think to what you're describing. Yeah. And something else that was interesting from the movie is that they were saying that they get their powers from the helping spirits. For instance, the North water tribe, there was a North and South for each type of uh group and the north water tribe is known to get their powers from the moon and ocean spirits i thought that was cool yeah i thought that was kind of interesting too i mean it as far as i understand it in shamanic um kind of core shamanic beliefs is that you get your power from your connection with the spirit world and the spirits you work with and it's about forging these connections and relationships that's really important so maybe that's something where the movie kind of drops the ball because it seems like this dragon's just like hey ong like i'm your spirit guide now and we're connected and you haven't had to earn this in any way shape or form unless it has something to do with the past lives i suppose i think it might have yeah it's possible i mean it did seem like the dragon knew who he was oh yeah definitely I mean, everybody and, and in this movie knows who he is, more or less. More than he does. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, what I meant by that was that the dragon seemed to be familiar with him, like they had worked together before. So, you could be right. It's not like they explicitly laid that out in the movie or anything. They left a lot very vague. And in some cases, that can be a boon because it feels more interesting, like you are having to put things together as the viewer. But... In this case, it just felt like we were being kept in the dark and nothing made a lot of sense. Now, that's the part that where it felt like a real M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> and this movie's not very long. It's only an hour and 40 minutes, but it feels both oppressively long and rushed to just the most extreme degree. Like, when the movie was ending, I was like, no, there must be... Like, when we were watching the movie, like, the first hour i was like oh my god how is this still going and then the final 40 minutes or whatever or just like the last few scenes i was like wait it's just over now like this is the resolution it was like everything going super fast and then like jumping from place to place in yeah. a really irreverent way and then suddenly it's just like nope we're just gonna like slam on the brakes and and throw you out of the car it didn't follow the usual film language for pacing of the movie so it, not at all it felt 
very off because of that. Yeah, the pace was jarring, I would say, is the best word to describe it. Yeah. But speaking of oppression, maybe we should talk about class struggle. Oh, I love when you talk dirty. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, okay, so let's get into it. Class struggle, my favorite topic to talk about. This one really... This movie really puts class struggle and oppression right at the center stage as it belongs in all fantasy movies. So while the movie was starting and as soon as the Fire Kingdom was introduced, Jack was like, oh, so this is like a metaphor for uh, or uh, the Fire Kingdom is an allegory for imperialist China, kind of. And then the airbenders are kind of like Tibetan or Shaolin monks. The waterbenders are Inuit people. So there's this kind of theme of uh, oppression throughout the whole film where this imperial power is deci- has decided that they're going to control the world. They're going to monopolize this spiritual entity, the Avatar. They've outlawed bending, which is kind of like the magic of the world. But it's also like the bending for each nation carries with it... Uh intense cultural traditions or very meaningful cultural traditions so it is like suppressing the local culture that would happen with real life colonizers absolutely and it seems like in the fire kingdom firebenders are either conscripted or they're they're de- they definitely seem to be conscripted into military service and also it seems like the royal lineage or whatever they are are hereditary firebenders because prince zuko and his sister are both firebenders of zuko seems incredibly powerful when he shows up as the blue demon like jack was saying he's able he and ong are able to basically take on an entire military regiment as a duo and and defeat an entire contingent of of trained soldiers. Apparently Zuko's sister is even more powerful than he is. The king or or sorry, the um Zuko's father is um a powerful military leader of this nation it seems like and I'm guessing a firebender but maybe not. I guess maybe we don't see anything for that. Zuko's guard seem to be made up of firebenders. You know, I think that Jack has a point that, and maybe it's even overt in, uh, the allegory is even overt that the firebenders are an allegory for imperialist China, but they also, I also saw a lot of corollaries to Romans and their form of subjugation. That's a really great point. You want to talk more about that? Other local cultures with the, um, suppressing local cultures and conscripting a all able-bodied warriors into service for Rome reminded me about what was happening with the different tribes in this film and in the show. And leaving them semi-autonomous. Right. They don't necessarily... Well, I guess in Roman situations, I guess, I guess with the Rome, they usually would have left like a governor or someone behind to kind of be in charge of things. That doesn't necessarily seem to be what the Fire Nation does. They don't seem to leave a live contingent of soldiers or anything behind. They in just the, come and take the people away or they take the, the benders away. They did both in the movie and so did the Romans. Yeah. They kind of had a varied approach depending on how uh, 
basically a subjective uh, feeling about how a local group may or may not rebel. Right. And if they felt like they would be easily controlled, they would kind of leave them to their own devices. It was very subjective. Right. Now, Soka and Katara's father is gone on some kind of, like, away mission of some kind. What's the deal there? Is he, like, a resistance fighter? Is he... Was he conscripted by the Fire Nation military? That's and what it was. Force in the service? Okay, so... Because they said he was taken away to the war, so... Okay. And that's what happened to all the other warriors of the group. So that... Of their tribe. So that they didn't have anybody left to defend them, and they could be more easily controlled. And in the show, uh, Soka is a teenager. He's the last warrior. He's trying to train himself, but there's nobody to actually train him. So he must and, have come of age after all the men were taken and is the closest thing they have to a protector. Yeah. Which one tween is not uh, a great military force. And but. It's, it's very lighthearted in the show, but it also has this really depressing undercurrent because he's the only one left to defend them and he's trying to train another contingent of warriors to defend their small village. Yeah, he's training and, child soldiers. Yeah, and they're all young children, and just thinking about it outside of the kind of comedic narrative gets really depressing. Oh yeah, I mean this show is, I think the, the show, I think is intentionally and sometimes unintentionally dark. Yeah. While maintaining a pretty lighthearted spirit. The movie is just kind of oppressive in its tone. Absolutely. It's gray. Yeah. Just the whole movie is very gray. Emotionally speaking. And cinematographically. Yeah, I guess that's true. So related to this idea of class struggle and kind of what one's role is, this is a big thing with Ong where he says in the movie that he wasn't allowed to have a family. He was part of this air nomad culture where children are kind of taken from their from their families and him especially he was told from an early age that he had a responsibility to all four nations not to any group of people so it's this kind of national identity if you think of this region of the world that the movie is taking place in as a larger cultural area with many smaller cultures dotted throughout it this is this idea that you know, whatever the Fire Nation does, whatever the air and the earth and the water nations do, Ong is responsible to all of them as a larger cultural group. Right. Kind of the way that like a confederation of nations like Scandinavia, a lot of those people have the same ancestral lineages, but they've kind of fractured into individual countries but there might still be like a Scandinavian identity. Right. Um, that just is the one that I would know the best. I, I'm sure that, you know, this being a show, this being based on a, a, a narrative that has more Asian influences, probably better. Um, there's probably better examples I could come up with, but I know the Scandinavian ones. So well, we can also talk at least a little bit with our limited knowledge about Native American groups and how each tribe has its own identity and traditions and culture. But then at least certain 
groups. I'm not trying to say that all Native Americans would feel this way, but I think that many, based on personal experience and research, would agree that there's also a pan-Indian identity that they can all relate to, especially today. Right. Uh, the more that they are fractured by outside influence, i.e. white American... Colonizers. Colonizers the more they might be inclined to create a shared identity in resistance to that oppression. Yes, and that motivation, based on listening to Native American voices, is the impression I get is what's driving this identity, at least in part. And I'm going to stop there because I don't know a lot and I can't speak from personal experience, but I just wanted to mention it so that we talk about it. Yeah, I think it's important to touch on that, especially with this movie, because of another thing that Jack brought up, which is the whitewashing of the characters. Yes. Because we have this group that is clearly inspired by Inuit cultures, and the principal actors are all basically white people Yeah, that were in these roles. And I know that this caused some controversy when the movie came out, and... I know there's a lot of opinions about what's called, again, whitewashing in Hollywood, and it's been a big issue since this movie's come out, well before this movie came out, but now it's starting to get some attention. I know there's a lot of different views on it, and it, there's no easy answer, because I know that there's always going to be a cynical response that white people get cast for American movies because that's what American audiences go to see, which creates a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent. Yeah, but that's just because the people in positions of power want to maintain that and or or groups in positions of power want to see that. But that is in no way representative of the diversity of the people that live here. No, definitely not. But I mean, it definitely is something that certain audiences do gravitate towards, it seems. Yeah, because they might be members of a dominant culture that sure. is suppressing other voices. Absolutely. And other faces and bodies. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And it's a big issue. It is a complicated problem to try to solve. Uh, we, as podcasters, are not going to solve any of these problems, but we hope that we can get people to think a little bit more about them and maybe be a little bit more critical and maybe, you know, do what you can to elevate other groups of people in the media you watch and or uh, in the media you consume and so on. But it is just a weird choice for this movie. I, I see the, this movie in particular was weird to me because it is such a weird like mixture of people kind of thrown into roles that are clearly inspired by another culture. And they put those actors into kind of these hodgepodge roles of like the principal actors for the Fire Nation, which again is representative of or allegorical for imperialist China, are generally actors of Indian descent, as in from India. Mm -hmm. 
And then the waterbenders, who are these Inuit-inspired group, are basically white actors. Well, they were kind of a mixture of white actors and people who, I mean, looked like they might have had um, some Native ancestry, but I can't be sure. Right, but Soka and Katara are like our principal characters uh, that represent that group for us as like the two main characters. Yeah, the, the main characters who got a voice... Yeah. Were the white actors. Yeah. And then the all Earth... The other, all their other kin that were people of other races were just silent in the background. Right. And then when they go to the Earth Nation, then it seems like there's some more probably Chinese actors playing characters in, in that scene. Yeah. Where they kind of... Where Ong kind of inspires a rebellion amongst the Earth Nation. Which, honestly, like, that's what I wanted to see more of in this movie. I mean, we see the larger water nation at the end of the movie fighting back against the fire nation. But the scene that I really liked is earlier in the movie when the Earth, when they go to the Earth village and the fire nation shows up and Ong is kind of like inspiring these people to rise up. And then it turns out that probably against the the conscription of the fire nation the earth nation still has benders there who fight back using their powers yeah or maybe you know it's this older father and i mean older like he's probably like in his 40s but i guess in a military culture you might not conscript like 40 year olds right when you're looking for like younger people but the father of this young boy uses his power openly, uses his bending power openly in defiance of the firebenders. Well, also to defend himself and his son when they're being attacked. Right. But I like that scene a lot where Ong is kind of like getting... That's the only time where you really get a, li a little bit of emotion out of this character and kind of see this idealistic view that people should not allow themselves to be oppressed, that all of the benders... All of these nations kind of come from the same stock. Yes, this is the twin theme to the domination and colonizing theme of the Fire Nation. It is the theme that people have a right to autonomy, to defend their autonomy, and to defend themselves from bodily harm. Yeah, and to not be oppressed. Yeah. Which I think made this movie, in some ways, a very fitting one to watch this week. Yeah, I know. It was not intentional at the time that I picked this movie. But it kind of was a happy coincidence that it kind of worked out. Yeah. Not that I necessarily am saying that a movie can, like, fix anything, but having these themes be in our minds while we're talking about a film, I think really highlights what works and what doesn't work about the movie. Right. And gives people something to think about if they're going to watch this movie and kind of overlay the current cultural context on top of it. It will feel maybe a little bit more real. Mm -hmm. Or at least it will give you more to think about. That's for you to decide. Yes. <laughs> but before I dig my own grave any deeper, why don't we move on to evil, stupid, or misunderstood? This is Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the podcast where we take a look at the principal antagonist or villain of the movie and determine if they were stupid or just flat out evil. Or hey, maybe they're misunderstood. So Chelsea, who's the real villain here? Is it 
Admiral Zhao? Is it Prince Zuko or Zuko's father? Is it the oppressive system of racism and domination that crushes all opposing voices underneath its heel? Ooh, 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 that one, number three. Okay, cool. Wait, well, I think that was number four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that the real villain of the film is this idea of a kind of a spiritual or psychological illness that can befall a whole nation and it brings everything out of balance and when that happens there's an imbalance in power dynamics and people can lose their connection to each other to their emotions and to their environment and they can become spiritually or psychologically ill and oh that sounds terrible <laughs> the pathway out of that is working on listening and finding acceptance for others and understanding which partly has to do with just like i said listening and learning about other people and accepting their traditions or practices as long as they're not hurting anybody right yeah i mean actually we didn't talk about uncle Iro at all during our discussion about the film but he's one of my favorite characters both in the movie and the show um the line he says to Zhao uh, towards the end of the movie when uh, Zhao has, like, killed the moon spirit and they've had to, and, and Iro and Ong and the others have had to, like, resurrect it by sacrificing Princess Yu. And he says to Zhao, you stand alone and that has always been your greatest mistake. Yeah. It's this idea that, I mean, going against this idea of the rugged individualist, right? Mm -hmm. That we are, that somehow we have deluded ourselves into believing that we are stronger by ourselves than we are together which is i mean any amount of like critical thinking will tell you that you will always be stronger with other people to back you up and also the idea that you not that you have individual autonomy that's legitimate but the idea that you can survive as an individual is very faulty anybody who thinks that they don't need anyone else is very misguided because everybody relies on the actions of others and the support of others even if you don't aren't aware of it or aren't thinking of the bigger picture right even if you think that you know you're you do things for yourself and and you don't need anybody else and you function that way you're still relying on the people that work at power plants to give you your power you're you're relying on the people that do all their jobs to support you that are invisible to you because it's out of sight but every single person that all practically that's alive today relies on the support of others whether they realize it or not whether they want to admit it or not yeah yeah and you know it that's a, a reason why this movie has kind of a mixed message to me because like there's the line earlier like i said that that ong isn't allowed to have a family because he's responsible to the four nations at the end of the movie all the people in the water nation bow to him and it kind of seemed to me like that is the wrong visual metaphor for what the movie is trying to say if anything, Ong should be showing deference to the world, yeah. right? To to this region, to the people. He should be a peacemaker. 
Yeah, he. the idea is that he serves all of them and tries to maintain the peace. Yeah, and then bowing to this one individual, I feel like really muddies the intended message. Yeah, it really does. It makes him seem like a chosen one, like he's the most important, but and the like whole he idea is, is that... But... But only to a degree. I mean, the I think the whole underlying message is supposed to be that it's all life that's sacred. Right. And he has a sacred duty to maintain that life through supporting peace yeah. between people. And by raising him up above all others, like they did at the end, I think that it does muddy that message for sure. So I, I think, like we've come to realize in most cases, the real villain here might be society. Yeah, maybe a, a society that has become ill. Yeah, which, I mean, that's that's that can be pretty evil and very stupid. And, and sometimes there's a lot of misunderstanding that contributes to it. And I think that's something that we can all relate to today. I think so. Well, now with that very uh, unclear <laughs> outcome, <laughs> I think we can head into the smithy. This is the smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie from 1 to 10 swords after we each share an epic moment or feature that stood out to us from the film. Let's use the magic of audio editing and hear from Jack. I suppose my epic moment is when Aang was captured by the Fire Nation while visiting an air nomad temple. And he's in a bit of a pickle, and Zuko comes disguised as the blue demon to break him out. I was almost positive they weren't going to include the blue demon in the movie, but I was very pleasantly surprised when that actually happened, because I thought that was a very cool display of what kind of person Zuko is, and kind of set up a cool dynamic to see Aang and Zuko fighting side by side. I thought that was very cool, and it was very cool to see it in the film. The movie, I'm going to give a 4 out of 10. Four out of ten swords, because it was rushed, it didn't allow the audience to connect to the characters or the setting, but it did do some interesting things that were different from the show. Again, it's so hard talking about a movie that is supposed to be based off this masterpiece show, so that's a little difficult, but I do like what it did with the spirit world, and I suppose that's about it. So there you go. Four out of ten swords. Wow, great stuff. Chelsea, do you want to give your epic moment next and then tell us your rating? Yeah, my epic moment has got to be at the end when Ong calls upon the power of water not to destroy the Fire Nation, but just to show that other elements can be just as powerful as fire, just in a different way. And that kind of reminds me of this shamanic idea that this shape or form that a spirit takes doesn't automatically determine how powerful it is or isn't. A hummingbird spirit helper can be just as powerful as the lion. Oh yeah, I'm waiting for that new character in, or that new spirit in Spirit Island. That's the hummingbird. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real thing. Oh, wow. So I like that idea that the element of water. If you're creative enough to 
think of it in different ways, then you can see how it can be powerful, just as or powerful or more powerful than a destructive force. Oh, see, I thought he was saying, don't fuck with me or I will snuff you out. So, <laughs> yeah, that is part of the muddied messaging of the movie. But so he calls up this tidal wave and the Fire Nation kind of just bounces because they're like, oh, we don't want to die. Yeah, I mean, the fighting stops so that everyone can see this. Like Charles said, it's a tidal wave that just kind of sits still. Like it's a wave sitting unmoving in wave shape kind of threatening the Fire Nation. Like, you want to fuck with this? You want to fuck with this? You don't want to fuck with this. <laughs> so that felt like a very epic moment to me. I'm going to have to go a little bit higher than Jack and give it a 5 out of 10 swords uh, because of the content that involved the spirits and the spirit world. I thought that was really interesting and might show people another way to portray that than just something to be afraid of. So I, I really appreciated that part of the movie. So I'll give it an extra point <laughs> for that. Nice. But I gotta say that, yes, the moment I described was epic to view. But part of the reason why it's getting such a low rating is because that is one example of how the movie can undermine its own messaging like we've talked about before. Because Ong doesn't try to do the hard work of using diplomacy to try to work out a peace between the nations. He's just using force and the threat of violence and showing that he is more powerful than everybody else to keep them all in line, like we mentioned before. So it's just kind of a piece through a stalemate. It's a piece that is forced on other people. And that's not going to be a lasting kind of peace. And um, Peace at the end of a sword is no peace at all. I think there are a lot of corollaries to that, to what is going on this week. And talking about these themes and these issues, or the underlying messages that get thwarted in films like this, kind of helps us, or can help us, see the corollaries to similar issues in our actual lives. Like, what is going on right now with the enforced curfews that might be going on in your area like it is with ours and the protests against police brutality and the uneven militaristic response to peaceful protests yeah oddly this movie kind of helps put some of this in the perspective and also kind of muddies the water in other ways yeah it's kind of a strange mix but i think that's kind of what all media does how about you jamie oh i'm glad you asked it's gonna be hard to follow that up <laughs> My epic feature is that for a bigger budget Hollywood movie, this film uses a few techniques from Hong Kong action cinema and more traditional like martial arts films in the use of longer cuts for action sequences. Mm. If you watch a lot of Western action movies, you're going to see tons and tons of cuts just all over the place. Like, Every, one second of film might have two or three cuts to try to like emphasize a punch or a kick or something. Whereas, there, I mean, and this, the sad thing is, like, this movie does not highlight this very well, but, you know, 
I think this is the reason why films like, you know, the John Wick series and stuff do so well. Part of it is that it takes their inspiration from these Asian cinema films where action sequences are shown in a longer frame. You see more of the actors actually doing these moves or whether it's actors or stunt people doing a more drawn out fight sequence. And I am a huge fan of a good fight scene. And again, this movie does not have many of them and it doesn't use it in a really strong way, but it stood out to me in this movie just because when you see it in comparison to a lot of other action movies, especially the ones we watch for this show, where a 30 second scene might be 40 cuts to make an action sequence. I mean, maybe that, maybe that's a little much, but then again, in like Underworld that we watched recently, that's basically what it was. Like there is no action sequence shot that is longer than one second, basically. They're just so fast paced and all over the place. This movie had a few longer fights between two characters or like one character defending themselves against multiple opponents. And I just appreciated that because you honestly do not see that enough except in movies where it's really like the highlighted feature of it, like the John Wick series, like Kung Fu movies and stuff. So I was happy to see that. That being said, and especially after watching a few episodes of the show and seeing how good the source material was, I'm going to give this movie three swords. I liked it more than I thought I was going to. I appreciated some of what it was doing, but anytime I'm forced to question whether or not a movie should even exist, it's going to lose some points. Like I said, I had a, I had a great time watching it with you guys. There's stuff, there's more to appreciate than I thought was going to be. But at the end of the day, it's such a muddied mess that is literally just aping something that is so much better than itself. I can't help but wonder how, like, however much halfway into the budget or shooting somebody didn't just go, you know what? We don't need to do this. Let's just shut it down. And I don't really mean that because I am happy whenever a movie gets made and people get work and are able to, you know, continue making films. I'm, I'm half kidding about that. It just, I wish the money had gone into creating something more original rather than trying to turn something really good, but animated into something incredibly mediocre, but live action. Or to like, it almost seems like they were trying to legitimize the source material. As far as I'm concerned, Avatar The Last Airbender is as fucking legit as it gets. Having watched just a few episodes, it grabbed me. And we ended up watching more episodes of runtime than this entire film. And it never felt like it was overstaying its welcome at any time. Because the storytelling is so tight in the show. And then seeing how sloppy it is in the movie just really highlights how disappointing that is. So three swords, that's where I stand. I don't I hope the swords aren't where I stand though, because that sounds like it would hurt. Unless you're an airbender. Good and point. you can just float over them. That's a really good point. Thank you. Uh why don't we head to the bounty board? So this is usually the part of the show where I do a fun little RPG-inspired intro, and we talk about some promotions or some media and stuff like that that um, we want to support. But while we're recording this, we are kind of in the middle of a series of nationwide protests against police brutality and violence against African-American people. And we didn't want 
to lighten the tone too much given the state of things. What we do want to do is state unequivocally that we support the peaceful protests, that we condemn police brutality and the militarized response to the protests. Yes, very much so. We stand with all the communities that are speaking out against violence, that are doing what they can to improve the conditions of their neighborhoods, of their members, and of the world around them. And what we really want to encourage you to do is just to educate yourself on the causes that matter to you. Find creators that you can support who might be black creators or trans creators or any other group of people who are traditionally who are traditionally marginalized by people in power and in authority. Consider your own role in systematic oppression and don't be a fucking reactionary. Don't be angry if somebody talks about concepts that are unfamiliar to you or that you have a knee-jerk reaction to, like white privilege. Don't You don't have to be so fragile and sensitive about things. I mean, Chelsea and I are some of the whitest people you could ever meet. <laughs> we don't get sad when people talk about the privilege that comes with that. We don't get offended when people say that we have advantages that other people don't have. It doesn't mean that we haven't had issues that we've had to deal with. We've both come up through our own individual hardships, and that was really challenging. And it would have been even more challenging if we weren't both white people in America. That's yeah. just the way it is. It's an undeniable fact. And anybody who says otherwise is trying to sell you something. And usually what they're trying to sell you is anger and outrage. And fear. Yeah. And they're not using their critical thinking skills. They're not coming at you from a genuine place of concern for American society or values or whatever. They just want to sow hatred and discord. And we are against that wholeheartedly, like down to our very core. Absolutely. There are different ways that you can support creators and artists that are speaking about these important issues or are just from traditionally marginalized groups who deserve to have their voices elevated. Um, it can be through monetary means because that's always helpful. <laughs> but give, give if you can, but don't, you know, but don't put yourself in any more of a precarious financial situation than you're already in. Yeah. But you can also tell other people about them and provide supportive comments to them. Just don't bombard them. Um, yeah, and don't ask them to explain things to you. Yeah, it's not their job to do the emotional work on your behalf. Exactly. Like, you can Google this shit. You can read what people have already written rather than, like, trying to pointedly ask somebody to educate you on the topic. Like, that is what the internet is for in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. That is a big part of what the internet's for. And you can ask other people in your own social circles. You don't have to bombard creators uh, to try to educate you. Um, but yeah, so show your support to them in other ways and talk to other people you know about these issues. That's another way to be supportive. Keep the dialogue going. Don't let it just be ignored anymore. We can't just keep supporting the status quo because it's comfortable. We need to look around us and see the problems, see the sickness, and think about and work towards ways to find healing. 
And that doesn't mean just suppressing the people that are pointing out that there's a problem or that there's a sickness here. Yeah, I mean, we all know that there's a problem. Just some people are lying about what that problem is. Yes. So do your best to in get yourself informed and maybe also do some research into what pseudoscience is and how to recognize it and what it means to be biased or partisan and how to think critically about the information that you are exposed to because everybody needs to kind of be informed on how to recognize these things. We did at one point, you know, we didn't just start out knowing how to see that, you know, we've had to question things and, and be told that you can't just, and you know, at different points in our lives that you need to question these things. I had a teacher in the fifth grade who said, question what you read. And that's the first person in my life who ever told me that. George Carlin was your fifth grade teacher? <laughs> My God, you never told me this. <laughs> and, you know, we all need a point in our lives when somebody points these things out to us. Don't feel ashamed if you didn't know it ahead of time or like other people are lording it over you. No, we all have these points in our lives when it becomes apparent to us or somebody points it out and then we have to do the work on our own to understand what is really going on and like it might be pointed out to you that you need to question these things and it's okay whatever point in your life that you're at it doesn't matter all that matters is that now you understand that and you can do the work on figuring out how to recognize when somebody is trying to persuade you or sell you on something and do the work on understanding how to think about that critically and then make your own assessment without just being swayed by other people's arguments or just listening to arguments that just reinforce your current stance. So don't be ashamed if you haven't thought about this before, because like I said, this isn't something that you just inherently know it's something that has to be pointed out to you and that can happen at any point in somebody's life so what matters is what you do after you learn that and if you've made it this far i just need to say one more thing before we move on to what our show is more or less about <laughs> don't let yourself be fooled by the idea that there's such thing as an apolitical piece of media or idea or show or movie or video game. Anytime somebody says something about a piece of media being politicized, they are lying to you. Whether they know they're lying to you or whether they're lying to themselves and to you, everything is political. A video game where you play as a U.S. military force invading another country a movie with an all-white, all-male principal cast. These things are political. The reason that people can get away with telling you they're not is because they are blind to what that means. Everything is political because politics affects every part of our lives. I am so tired of seeing these disingenuous arguments about people being angry that something is being politicized because they've included non-white, non-male, or non-gender binary characters. It's, it's just not true. 
erasing people from reality is politicized. Those are the politics that you should be critical of. You should not be angry because people other than white straight males are in your media. And I honestly hope that if you're already listening to this show, you already know that. But hey, maybe you don't. And fucking A, I'm glad that you're listening. I'm glad that you're joining us on this journey. We're not trying to kick out any listeners who are have different opinions than us. That's no, definitely not. Definitely not what our training as anthropologists has led us to. We just want everyone to know where we stand and we're not going to hide the things that we hold dear and the things we hold dear are friendship and connectivity and community and a sense of belonging we want everyone to feel like they belong in all the communities they're a part of we're not going to fix our problems overnight but god damn it why don't we try at least a little bit once in a while to open up our minds to something new And and at the end of the day isn't that kind of what fantasy is all about? Seeing new perspectives, seeing the world from new eyes, living in someone else's body or somebody else's world for a little bit, whether it's a 600-page book or a three-hour movie series or a TV show that spans from you know, the beginning of a story to the end of a story arc. Yeah, I want people to think about the idea that maybe fantasy isn't just escapist. Maybe fantasy is also an opportunity to imagine a different world. Maybe it's not always a better world, but it's a different world. And we we can use the exercise of consuming fantasy media as a new tool in our toolkit to imagine a different world for ourselves. And usually it's a better world, so... <laughs> you have to have that in your imagination to know what you want to work toward so that you can make it happen. That's the importance of our imagination. And that's a big part of fantasy. Absolutely. That is kind of the root of storytelling too, right? Like that's what makes it important. It's it's the ability to see things from a new perspective or from a new set of eyes or from somebody else's perspective. And that's what great storytellers do. They give you a view into another world. Yeah. So thank you for listening while we share these thoughts. And we hope that we've used this platform well to get you to think about some of these things. And we want you to know that we love you because the world needs a little bit more love right now and a little bit more understanding. I agree. Well, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in and sticking with us as we stood up on our podcast uh, soapbox here. And we hope that you enjoyed our discussion about The Last Airbender and about some of the social things that just couldn't go unspoken about because we live in a society and these things affect us all. And, you know, we know that there's a lot of perspectives out there and there's a lot of ideas and that we might not all see eye to eye, but we hope that at the bare minimum, we can all recognize that the things that affect us affect everyone around us and our attitudes contribute to the kind of general feelings of people around us and that we have an effect on each other. Yeah. And our perspective about reality shapes reality around us. So our ability to imagine a different reality will help it take shape around us as we act differently and, and we want different things. Yeah. And you know, if you have any thoughts, whether you agree with us or disagree with us or 
like that we had this discussion or don't like that we had this this discussion, shoot us an email. Let us know what you know what you think, and maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode. But if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. We we appreciate you and love you. That's right. And as always, we love you. <laughs> uh, and like Crom probably doesn't love you, but that's okay. That's kind of his whole shtick. He's just kind of aloof. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I don't want to make that commitment. <laughs> <laughs>